Darn tootin'. Welcome to the Fargo Category 3 podcast where you can hear lots of terrible impressions uh, throughout this episode, I hope. Uh, Meet, how are you doing? Hey James, uh, I am doing well. Uh, super excited to discuss Fargo. <clears throat> um, yeah. I, um, I, I think I messaged you as I was, uh, as my wife and I decided to watch this um, we just came up on this randomly and we thought, let's, let me show this movie to her. And, um, and then I messaged you and you were like, do you want to record this? And I was like, Hey, perfect idea. Let's, let's give it a shot. So, <clears throat> yeah. So yeah. And we both watched it actually, uh, quite some time ago. Um, we had originally planned to schedule this, but unfortunately, um, we uh, weren't able to do it at that time, so we're recording this a little bit later. So our memories might not be quite as fresh as they were um, a few weeks back, uh, but that's fine. We'll see how this goes. Um, so Fargo, 1996. Um, wow. uh, I think this sort of belongs into this canon. It's like I'm 34, you're mm -hmm. 33, um, and so it sort of belongs to this like group of movies that you know. I think we both watched when we were like teenagers or, or young mm -hmm. adults and uh, in, in the sort of like mid 90s, early 2000s canon of films mm -hmm. that, you know, you're just used to watching. It was listed highly on the IMDb top 250 list. It still is, mm -hmm. I believe. Um, and so I would uh, say a quick yeah, clarification, can, but I wasn't I wasn't quite in my teenage years when I watched it. I was a little. I was aware of this movie, weirdly enough, because it's been on TV, but I never, like, properly watched it probably until my early 20s. Still still fairly young, so... Okay. Um, so you watched it in yeah. college? Yeah, uh, yeah, around, like, late college years, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was going to ask uh, when you first saw it and, and what you remember about it, if you liked it originally, and, and uh, yeah... So did you like it when you saw it in your early um, days? I, I had, I, I want to say I had mixed feelings about it. And I kind of came around to uh, watching more Coen Brother movies. Uh, but uh, until then, I was kind of not a very seasoned viewer. So, like, <clears throat> I would watch a lot more, like, comedies and R-rated comedies and rom-coms and stuff. So... <laughs> Not not very, not very. Not, doesn't feel very good to admit that, but I kind of became more of a like a specific kind of genre movie watcher, a little bit closer to the end of like my college years and and after that. So um, got it. Definitely, um, it it def I definitely liked it, but I still had mixed feelings about it because it just wasn't kind of the movies that I used to watch. Um, I didn't do have you, any specific expectations why? going into it. Uh, you were saying? Yeah. Do you recall exactly how this film ended up on your sort of watch list? Uh, uh, I don't. I, I think it just, I just happened upon it. I don't know. 
I don't recall it very well about okay. like the time I watched it and stuff. Um, tell tell me about yourself. What was your experience like? Were you were you a specific Coen Brothers fan, or like was this one of your first Coen Brothers movies, or like how did you come across it? Yeah, I think this was one definitely one of my first Coen Brothers movies. I saw I think I believe when I was in high school, so when I was like sixteen mm -hmm. or seventeen. Um, and for me, it was that was right when I started to get into films. And so one of the things I was doing is going through the uh, sort of the IMDb top uh -huh. 150 yeah. rated films. And it's like this film at that time would have been like in the last yeah. 10 years. And it's a crime movie. So it was a pretty easy sign me up to watch this. Uh, so I, I think I watched it a few times back then. Um, it's actually never been my favorite Coen Brothers uh -huh. film, um, and that might be somewhat of an unpopular uh -huh. opinion, um, but um, I do enjoy it, and I, I continue to enjoy it, and I enjoyed it when I saw it um, um, a few uh -huh. weeks back, too. Uh, yeah, what was, uh, so this most recent watch, did you enjoy the film? You, you said you saw it uh, also with your your wife. Uh, how did uh, she like the film? Uh, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't ask her. I think uh, she found it at times to be just a little bit more violent. I did not tell her anything about this movie and I just said, maybe you'll like it. <laughs> and I think she sort of liked it, but <laughs> um, yeah, definitely there are moments that are certainly more violent and uh, I don't know if she, she's okay with violence in general. It's just so um, calm for the most part in the movies, movie and then uh, it gets pretty violent at times. Right. I mean, I would say for this film, especially the tone of the violence, and, and maybe the Coen brothers more in general, the tone of the violence is really um, yeah. unique because their films can get quite dark and quite yeah. violent, um, but there's almost like a, a lackadaisical, no-nonsense way that they yeah. show it, that it just makes it kind of a little more yeah. shocking, uh, where these sorts of violent moments can be just like incredibly violent, seemingly out of yeah. nowhere. It's like a lot of the murders and stuff like that are for pretty poor reasons yeah. <laughs> they're just kind of like through circumstance and coincidence yep, and that sort of thing you're very um, right one thing so I, if i could add to that as well first of all like really good description of typically how the violence is in in coen brother movies another thing i i feel like is coen brother movies tend to be so much more grounded and feel so much more real that um like the violence in it also has that has that very shocking effect also um so yeah just just the grittiness and and um stuff that comes through yeah yeah <clears throat> yeah sounds right um so real quickly here is a very short synopsis of the film um i think i got this from either wikipedia yeah. or imdb uh, and is Jerry Lundegaard's inept crime falls apart due to his and his henchmen's bungling and the persistent police work of the quite pregnant Marge Gunderson. Yes. Uh, good synopsis? Accurate synopsis? Pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Inept is, is uh, the key word here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you kind of, you watch that movie, yeah. you watch the movie and like, I think it's like within first 10 or so minutes where he uh, meets with the henchmen and there's like l the timelines there 
their times for meeting are off by an hour. And that's like clearly the really good beginning where you, you can tell like, okay, these people are completely careless and should not be doing, obviously nobody should be setting up a kidnapping plot, but these people should be the last people to, to work through a kidnapping plot and, and try to uh, execute a kidnapping together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I feel like that sets up the uh, the film perfectly. It's sort of like you, they talk about the crime, but before they do that, they like have a disagreement <laughs> of whether they're supposed to meet at seven thirty yeah. or eight thirty. Uh, random question: Who who do you think was wrong? Do you think uh, Jerry was wrong, or do you think it's um, uh, the Buscemi character, uh, Carl Schulwalter and uh, Gerard Grimsred, that were wrong? Who 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 were wronged, or who were like? Yeah, yeah. Who 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 was right? Like who 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 showed up at the right time? Was it seven thirty or eight thirty? <laughs> does it does it matter? <laughs> okay, I don't know. It like, is there is there a hidden answer? <laughs> I would like to know if there was an Easter egg okay. for this. Well, I mean, basically, I'm asking you which one is more trustworthy, uh, Jerry? Or Clearly, Carl? neither. <laughs> like, do you okay. do you find okay? <laughs> In my opinion, neither are trustworthy. Do you have an opinion of who is less trustworthy of of the two parties? Or do you have um, an opinion? Honestly, I kind of trust Jerry less. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Even though he's the uh he's the uh uh not the career it, criminal like, or anything. But... If you had to deal with if somebody told you either deal with the henchman or deal with Jerry, you would go with henchman. Like to, to get some kind of like simple work done, not, not kidnapping, but like, you know, having to meet the timelines and having to meet the deadlines, you'd be like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think so. Uh, like the amount of times that you see Jerry mislead and lie in the movie <laughs> is so many more than the, the, <laughs> than, uh, Carl or Gare. It's like, he's doing it all the time. I mean, like it, this movie did not do any favors to, uh, use car salesmen or car salesmen <laughs> in general. Um, it's, so, uh, uh, personally, I would trust the henchman, okay, you know, much. you might end up in the wood chipper. There's like a 2% chance you'll end up in the okay. wood chipper. But, uh, but, uh, <laughs> I think with Jerry, there's a hundred percent chance that yeah. he's going to screw you yeah. over in some way. So I, I, I guess I was just trying to get an understanding and you give me a way more statistical answer than I expected. So I, like, I thought Jerry was also less trustworthy from the kind of person he is, right? He's kind of like a white collar um, person working, having and has a job and everything. And from that perspective, he's definitely way less trustworthy. But I wasn't sure if that perception gave me an idea of like he's less trustworthy than than the henchman or if it was if there was a real underlying reason but you gave a really good basically like a statistical answer which which you know i'm with you at that point like let's let's go and do our <laughs> business with the henchman <laughs> yeah um so uh one one thing about this film too is like i think this is like one of the films that you're going to remember from the specific era. Absolutely. But uh, so it, 
famously won uh, Best Actress for Frances McDormand playing uh, Marge Gunderson. No um, I think well yeah. deserved yeah, in yeah, this yeah. case. Um, but it was not, and it was nominated for a bunch of other ones. I believe the only other uh, uh, Oscar won was for Best Original Screenplay, also well deserved. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was nominated, but did not win for Best Picture. Do you know what won that year? No, uh, I I can't guess. The English Patient. <laughs> I have not seen it. Have you <laughs> seen The English Patient? Does anybody talk about The okay. English patient, well, patient today? That is exactly my point, is that this is the film from that year that we're going to remember. Uh, the other nominees were Jerry Maguire, which is also yeah. talked about yeah. still now, uh, probably the second most famous film, although I definitely picked Fargo over it. Uh, Secrets and Lies and Shine. I actually have zero memory of either of those okay. last two films. So Ray uh, Fiennes with so of that uh, year, I in, feel- in The English Patient and Juliette Binoche, I think. Uh, and Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I've seen The English Patient, um, but frankly, I, I have no <laughs> desire to rewatch it um, again. I mean, it's sort of like your standard historical drama. I feel like we are going to remember Fargo from this year, um, kind of like we remember Pulp Fiction from like 1984. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, all right. Uh, so, uh, okay. So let's let's dive into this a little bit more. Um, uh, one of the interesting things is like probably the what would you say is the the largest role for this film? Um, I think there's probably like four main ones. Um, there's uh, there's uh, Carl mm-hmm. Walter played by uh, yep. Steve Buscemi. Uh, we have Jerry Lundegaard played by William yep. H Macy. Uh, we have Garrett Grimsrud, played by Peter uh-huh. Stormar, uh, who plays um, uh, Carl's partner. And then we have uh, Marge Gunderson, played by uh, Francis McDormand. Which one would you say, would you say any of those are a lead, or, or do you think it's more of an ensemble-type effort? It feels more ensemble, but they're never... For the most part, they're n- neither of them are on screen together a whole lot, also. Like, uh, the henchmen are. Um, Carl and Gerd are, but the like if you think of them as three different parties, you don't see them um, together very often. But the few interactions they have are kind of interesting and entertaining. Obviously, definitely um, get your adrenaline pumping. So it's tough for me to say ensemble in a in a way either. But it's also tough for me to say like there is one specific lead uh yeah francis mcdormand does like yeah i would like just from a like a traditional sense maybe she's the lead i don't know i I don't have a good answer on that right i mean i guess i mean she's the only good positive character uh of those four for sure i think you make a really good point actually it's almost like the three different parties are operating on completely different Mm -hmm. like timelines it's like sometimes there's a couple scenes with jerry and carl uh really just the one at the beginning uh other than that they talk on the phone mm-hmm. a couple times um and uh it's like 
Marge never even encounters uh, Carl. I mean, she sees his foot going through the wood chipper. Oh, that's right. Uh, but that's about it. Um, and she shoots uh, Gera, but until the very end, she hasn't even occupied the same screen space as them. Yeah. Um, so I think it's actually really interesting that Frances McDormand uh, won uh, Best Actress for this. I think she's really good in this movie, but it's a pretty short movie. It's only 98 yeah. minutes, and she shows up um, in the 34th minute of it. So she doesn't really show up until um, uh, we're almost uh, a third of the way oh, through wow. the film. Okay. Um, and even after that, she's still splitting that last hour with the other um, other characters yeah. to it. So I think it's so Jerry probably yeah. has when, the most like officially he probably has the most on screen time. I imagine. I. I would guess so too, um, just because he's the main party that's playing um, a part just throughout the yeah. entire film. Um, yeah. Uh, what did you uh, What did you make of uh, Francis McDormand's performance? Are you a fan? You betcha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she is. Uh, I I really enjoyed her character. Um, I loved how. Um, um yeah she she just navigates a lot of different social situations uh through this movie as well as um kind of um crazy situations right so like uh apprehending the apprehending gear at the end as well and like while he's murdering those two or he's killed those two people and putting them through wood chippers but also that very unusual meeting with her uh, high school friend who tries to I don't I don't even know what his he's trying to get to like she's a pregnant married woman but yeah it just has a very awkward interaction with that person um, and then a couple of interactions with Jerry but I don't know she I, I felt like she kind of shined through the movie um, Right. I mean, I, I think she's really good, mm -hmm. too. Um, I agree with much of what mm -hmm. you said. Um, I think uh, I think we touched on this point a little earlier, but one of the things is, like, three of those... The other three characters are all kind of varying degrees of scumbags. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So it's almost, like, necessary to have her to provide that warmth. And, you know, sometimes the w sort of warmer, uh, kinder nature of these falls into sort of thankless female mm -hmm. roles that are like sort of supporting like their husband police what's interesting too um is that there's a bit of like gender reversal mm -hmm. and role reversal when it comes to her um because not only does she provide that warmth to the film that might traditionally fall to more of a thankless uh female role in a police procedural but she is also actually the police person and it's almost like you roll those two roles in together and so she's the most competent mm -hmm. character that's like solving solving the actual mm -hmm. crime, um, but she also provides that emotional center because without her there, this film is really, it's really pretty darn dark. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, the, like a lot of what the other three characters are doing is like it's pretty, uh, it's some shameful shit. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 they are not nice people. Um, so I think without her, um, the film just comes off just like very different. Like if you had like. Mm -hmm let's say, like, um, a male uh, police character in that same role, mm. and you had that stereotypical thing. The f movie is just totally different, um, and it's probably a lot worse. 
that's yeah that that's a really good interpretation yeah it would it would be it would not work out as well as as it did with francis for sure so yeah yeah um that's really good uh-huh. um but I, I do think uh, probably a big appeal uh, for this film is the cast. Um, a couple of the ones. So Francis McDormand as Marge uh-huh. Gunderson. Uh, William H. Macy as Jerry Lundergaard. Uh, Steve Buscemi as Carl Schellwalter. Uh Did you want to talk about one of those other two, Jerry or or, uh, or uh, Carl? Um, sure. Yeah. Like we should talk about all of them. Um, I think, uh, I mean, uh, both uh, Carl or uh, Jerry. <clears throat> All right, which one? Uh, which one should we, should we hit first? Yeah, we should talk about Jerry. He's the he's the main. Um, he's sort of the main character who kind of interweaves a lot of different characters and and uh, uh, and is present throughout the whole story, right? So, it's uh, Jerry is like you said the most untrustworthy character that you'll find in the whole movie and probably a person that you don't want to deal with and i love how it starts out with just the well his his work part starts out with the couples that he's selling the car to and are just absolutely mad at him for for telling him that he has a specific model of the car, a specific version, and then still kind of, kind of, you know, like literally a bald-faced liar and, and, and tells them that they have to pay more to get the car. And they just give him a ton of crap for that. Um, and and he, he, still, he still does, you know, still screws them over, basically. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah yeah um and uh to me this is almost like the ultimate william h macy role he, i think uh i think reading about this film um they specifically had buscemi and francis mcdormand and peter stormar in mind but the one part that they did actually like go through casting and stuff like that um and uh they weren't necessarily set on a character was actually for jerry lundergaard Really? And uh, but I think William H Macy nails it. It feels like it's a role written specifically for him. Um, yeah, I'm reading the IMDb trivia tribu- right now, and he begged the directors for the role of Jerry Lundergaard. Wow. He did two readings for the part and became convinced he was the best man for the role. Um, when they didn't get back to him, he flew to New York where they were starting production and said that he's worried they're going to screw it up, and I'll shoot your dogs if you don't give it to me. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, he really, really wanted the role, um, but I agree with him. I think he was well, perfect. For yeah, it. he's uh, yeah, he really fits in well in the in the Jerry Lundergaard suit, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's interesting too because we were talking about uh, uh, how he probably has the most mm-hmm. screen time of all of the characters. Uh, interestingly, Frances McDormand uh, was nominated for Best Actress. Uh, he was. He was also nominated, uh, but he was in Best uh-huh. Supporting Actor. So they decided to put him into the supporting category rather than the right. lead. But to be honest, I think he's just as much of a lead as Francis McDormand is. Yeah, uh, it's just such an unusual role for the lead. And I wonder if that kind of confused the Academy in terms of, 
like whether to put him in as a lead or a supporting character. But I, I agree with you that like if I were to look at it today, I would certainly put him as a, as a lead for for the nomination. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, anything else to add about his performance? I think uh, you pretty summed it up pretty well there. I mean, he's like a real shifty character. Um, anything? To add? Um. Not that I can think of. I mean, uh, I I would say that he's just very yeah he's very shifty. But I feel like uh, I also, you know, I guess I guess the thing that I would add is surprisingly there are moments where I actually feel bad for Jerry of all the people, uh, despite his his untrustworthiness, and and you kind of see like places where he just gets beaten down with uh, when he talks in his uh, dealings with his father-in-law and father-in-law's friend. And uh, you see that happen a couple of times once when he there when he's there to talk about the business and business proposal and gets completely screwed over because uh, as we know, he's, he was there to ask for money so he could do the business himself and pay them the interest rate which um, which is a really good thing to do than probably, I guess in a way it was a better thing to do than to like put his wife on the front line than, and, and get her to uh, beg for the money from her father so that he could do business. So like that was a little bit of a positive from, from Jerry, but he gets beaten down. And not only that, he they don't even want to give him the, like the father-in-law and um, and his friend just don't even want to give him the finder's fee at the end. They're like, well, we'll just take over this great business idea ourselves. Uh, and even when, I think he even proposes the idea once before, right? And and his father-in-law kind of just goes like, doesn't, doesn't seem to trust his idea at the time. And then comes back and with numbers later on is like, well, this is actually a great business indeed. And like, we're going to go forward with this without you. Sorry, Jerry. Um, right. Yeah. It adds a bit of depth to the character, doesn't it? Just having, uh, just more fully characterizing that relationship, uh, that very frustrating relationship with like the father-in-law who just doesn't treat him very seriously. For sure. I think like you can sort of attribute at least some of his, uh, like character flaws to, to this, like being treated, treated in such a way that, it's a like his father-in-law may not necessarily be directly related to him, but it's still family, and he it, like he gets a very dog-eat-dog world kind of treatment from from his in-law family. So yeah, uh, sort of legitimizes. I, I maybe that's not the word, right word, but like adds a little bit of like reasonable understanding to why his character it may be the way he, uh, he his character is right, right, right. Is it's sort of is, like right. a yeah exactly i think that's a good point um just trying to be taken seriously um when his father-in-law clearly doesn't treat him such i mean in some sense it's interesting too that the relationship with his father-in-law is far more fully realized than it is with his actual like a nuclear family with his uh, wife and his, his son. Uh, wife and his yeah. son yeah 
who are mainly just uh, dawdling on the site. I mean, it also might show you that uh, his priorities are a little mm. out of whack. The fact that he's uh, he's shooting for these business deals and stuff. Mm. I mean, like it's extremely callous to have your own wife kidnapped. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, so I mean, like it doesn't certainly doesn't excuse his actions. Um, like he's really a scumbag that has sort of the facade of a of a car salesman um, mm -hmm. in a way. But uh, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Anything else to add? Yeah, I think. And then obviously there's a little bit of other side maybe to to this is like he. I think he works at his father's car dealership, right? Or father-in-law's car dealership, right? Or is it? Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. So that may be another reason why maybe the father-in-law doesn't treat trust him. So yeah, it's it's tough to tell, but like definitely add like you said adds a little bit of a depth to uh jerry's character yeah yeah shall we move on to uh carl showalter <laughs> sure sure what what are your perceptions sure. of carl uh i love it i i love him and the just like the total mismatch is like it makes me wonder how these two even like got introduced <laughs> to each other and why they thought this was a good idea i mean this film is so much of just like people having bad ideas <laughs> just like bad ideas it's like i don't know why these two are partners uh but like uh for me a lot of the funniest parts are carl and gara grimsrud uh and just like the the chemistry or lack thereof between those two um uh in imdb trivia it says gara grimsrud uh which is peter stormar's mm -hmm. character has 18 lines of dialogue in the mm -hmm. entire movie and never says more than one complete sentence <laughs> at a time by comparison carl showalter has over 150 lines of dialogue. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Um, uh, he's a very loudmouth, colorful guy. And just, um, yeah, you see him just say, like, exactly what basically, you kind of said it, but like over the phone too, you you hear him say three thing, three sentences when the work can be done with just one, one sentence, right? So um <laughs> yeah but he i think he adds like a little bit of a little bit more uh they both had darkness to the the movie him and gear but carl adds maybe a little bit more color to the to the film like makes it funny and and entertaining um just as you said that you know uh francis's character maybe adds a little bit more warmth to the movie yeah, I agree. I, th I think Carl's the funniest part of the movie and just him going back and forth with Garrett or even just going back and forth on its own. Uh, for me, one of the funniest moments is, uh, is, uh, when they're, when, uh, Carl tries to have total fucking silence with him and he's just like talking to himself, uh, after, uh, Garrett just says no to something. And he's like, that's the last thing you said in the last four hours. That's a, that's a fountain of conversation, man. <laughs> That's a geyser. I mean, whoa, daddy, stand back. Back. Shit. <laughs> and then and then he just goes off and off and off about about that. Like that that to me is is that. And I think uh I think one of the things this film does is it hits especially Steve Buscemi and William H. Macy at just sort of like the perfect time in their career where they can sort of pull off mm -hmm. these roles. I think Francis McDormand's had uh still has some good roles today mm -hmm. i mean most recently in Thrill three billboards i think she's really good in that mm -hmm. film 
Um, but I think um, for uh, these other two, it's like we think about mid '90s Bouchami and Macy, and they're in like just a ton of different great mm. roles. Um, I feel like they're in different points of their career now. Right. But um, I think uh, I think uh, Bouchami is. Perfect. So would you say they're close to sort of their peak in their career when they did this movie? Uh, you know, we'd have to look at it. Uh, I don't know if Buscemi would say his peak is Armageddon, uh, or not, but... <laughs> Buscemi know. was in uh, Armageddon? This is definitely... Wasn't he? Was I he don't not? know. I don't know. I swear he was in I know, um... <clears throat> so... I know the other guy, Gare, uh, Peter Stormore, Starmore, was in, in, in Armageddon, uh-huh. but... I don't know if Steve Buscemi was also in it. He might be. I, I don't even remember... Or am I getting so well, so much? So, <clears throat> yeah. But for me, like, of all the Buscemi movies that I may have seen, this and 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 Reservoir Dogs are probably the two movies that are very, kind of, uh, the movies that I remember of Buscemi. Like, these are the two movies that come to my mind when I when somebody says Steve Buscemi. Yeah, if I had to pick a favorite Steve Buscemi role, I would. That would be one A and one B for me too. It's like I don't know what would be Mr. Pink. Uh, For William H Macy, it would be I guess this and Boogie Nights, something like that. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen very many Macy movies, so it's tough for me to um, to say. Maybe (laughs) the 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 one movie that I like with William H Macy is is Wild Hogs, which is not. You're, it's not a standard like Macy movie. It's more of a bromance, okay. bro, man's comp. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's a completely different kind of movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, um, anything else to add on any of these characters? Um, not on the characters per se, but I love how you said like, just how some of these characters they just keep making bad decisions and um one of the earlier coen brothers movies that i'd seen was uh, uh, uh blood simple at some point as well um i don't know if i watched it before or after fargo and blood simple that came out in i think in 84 was also <clears throat> also very similar in that like a lot of characters just keep making bad decisions and and terrible decisions uh and and like you're like oh my god you just you know one after another and and that leads into chaos and murder and stuff um but right. i think fargo it, it just feels like way more of a tighter well done film from from that perspective like it's almost like a a a more polished version of blood simple the the, in a in the in the higher genre sense you know not in the specific like taking the story and redoing it sense right it's been forever since i've seen blood simple um i i I don't think i've seen that since high school but i remember that film being relatively humorless compared to something like this yeah yeah Um, and I don't know if that's a misperception or, or if I'm remembering that correct, but uh, I think one of the things that makes basically makes Fargo stand out is you have those elements, and then you have the March Gunderson 
character, which adds a lot of that humanity mm-hmm. as well as humor to it um, and lightens the tone just mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, yeah, one of the things I think is a real strength in this film, too, are just sort of like, and I, I think the Coen brothers in general is how they have this, like, they really, like, mastered this tone of, of contrasting information. It's, like, moments when, like, uh, the the security guard for the parking garage is, like, super polite with Buscemi, and he's just like, open the fucking gate, and, like, his jaw's bleeding uh-huh. and all uh-huh. that stuff. And I, and I feel like the Coens are masters of creating moments like that, where it, and, and they're totally unique to them, too. It's like, I can't really think of comparable directors. I mean, they have just such a um, strong feel, uh, strong vision for their own um, sense. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you have anything to say about, um, I don't know, just different things that you like I, about the film? You called that moment. Like, that was one of the moments that I was going to talk about, and it's like, you think about it, <laughs> And, uh, like, that's the moment where you can tell, like, this guy is so, so bad that, like, he is literally leaving a trail. Like, even if he gets away with it now, like, he's leaving a trail of, like, evidence and, like, um, what am I saying? Like, uh, uh, witnesses that will know what, you know, like, they'll be able to point out if, if somebody came and asked questions about this. It's just, like... How many times do you see a person that's just bleeding from the jaw and screaming at you to tell you to like open a gate or something? Right, right. And it's like that that's how they generate the humor yeah. in this too, where it's like moments these like moments where it's like during the actual kidnapping, it's like Buscemi is just sort of like walking around strangely with like the mask on and so like uh Lundergard's wife sees them and she's just like what's going on and she doesn't really think it's serious until they like break the break the glass window and step into the house but uh it's like filled with like these odd little quirky moments Mm -hmm. like that that uh that are like mixed with like moments of extreme violence like that's followed up with like a pretty suspenseful scene where they actually kidnap her Mm -hmm. um so uh i think it's like these contrasts uh uh these humorous contrasts that really make the film Right, right, for sure. Did you, um, what did you think was um, Carl's biggest mistake? Yeah. Carl's? Um, of all oh, the things geez. he does uh, on and off screen, would you say? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, they, I don't know. Uh, what, what's his biggest mistake? I mean, probably his biggest mistake was uh, his choice of partner. Uh, I I just don't think he was a very good match. I mean, that is ultimately what makes him end up in the wood chipper too. So I have the ben- <laughs> benefit of hindsight there. Um, yeah. But what what do you think is his biggest mistake? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess you could say that for both, right? Like, Gare gets fucked over because Carl has been super noisy too. So, like, eventually that's what leads the um, the officer there. But um, I felt like maybe maybe Carl's biggest mistake of all the things I thought was to actually go back and like pay off, pay off, like go back to pay his partner off at the end and then fight about like who was going to get the car or whatever. <laughs> it was just like stupid. Yeah. And, and the like... 
first of all, he didn't need to go back there. Um, he had way more money than he needed and like could have just survived off of whatever millions of dollars that he had and, and gone far, far away. Uh, second, uh, even if he went back, he, he still had way more money than his partner. He didn't need to like stick around and fight with him on principle. You, you could have just told him to keep the car or whatever, or like just left. He decides to fight his partner. I, I don't know if that's his biggest mistake, but I feel like that would have saved him from dying. Yeah. So biggest mistake in terms of like. Yeah. <laughs> well, honestly, if you replace his character in this film with Mr. <laughs> Pink from Reservoir Dogs. Are they pretty much the same people? I, I think. No, I, I think Mr. Pink's way better. I think he's a much higher level criminal than Carl is in this film. Okay. I mean, he's a fucking professional, man. He's a fucking <laughs> professional. He wouldn't handle his business, you know? But doesn't he get talked into, like, not tipping, not wanting to tip? <laughs> By uh, <laughs> whose character is it? Is exactly. it Tarantino's Exactly, so he wouldn't have even bothered. just, like, talks <laughs> about not, not tipping, or was it... I mean, that's basically what the payment to uh, Gara at the end is. It's, it's a tip. tip. It's, it's 8%. A... It's $80,000 of a million dollars. So... He wouldn't have tipped. He wouldn't have even shown up. He would have just bounced with the money. That's right. Wait, is Mr. Pink... Like, <laughs> we're going off tangent, but is the Mr. Pink... Is Mr. Pink the one who didn't want to tip at the beginning and get talks other people into it? Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Ex yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. We should we should do Reservoir Dogs. There we go. That's a... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. What do you make of the pacing of this film? Does this film ever get too slow for you, or, or do you find it moves pretty fast? I, f I felt like the pacing was really well done. I don't know if I can say that there there's any point it goes really slow. A anywhere it, it feels yeah, like it maybe it goes slow is where you see learn a little bit more about Francis or uh, Jerry. So it's, I don't know. It's always pretty well done. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's only 98 minutes. It's a lot shorter than I remember, mm -hmm. actually. Um, a lot of my other favorites from that era, such as like Seven or Pulp mm -hmm. Fiction, those are really, those are movies that are uh, two hours, and in some cases well above yeah. two hours. Uh, this film, in contrast, is, is pretty lean yeah. and tight. And the story is a lot simpler than I remember, too, yeah. um, just coming back to it. And maybe it's because the Coen brothers' plots have gotten progressively a little more mm -hmm. complicated. Um, but really, it's like a, kind of a very character-centric film um, that does really well with these sorts of like simple ideas. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I agree. I, I think it's, uh, it's a well-paced film. I'm not sure. The, the only thing that I would have considered cutting, and I'm curious to hear your opinion on this scene, is the scene with uh, Mike Yanagita where uh, Francis McDormand uh, or Mark Gunderson has uh, a meal with him mm -hmm. in, I believe, the Twin Cities. Um, and it's, I think, uh, I think it's one of the more controversial scenes mm -hmm. in this film. Uh, it doesn't really necessarily serve any plot points, so I think it's exactly. it's mainly about the characters. What what did you think of that scene? Do you think it should have? If if you were the editor, would you have left that in, or or do you think it should have been cut? Right as that scene ended, I felt like it was so. Like 
out of the the story that we're following, right? So it definitely didn't really make any sense in on that front. But it, I felt like it. If you watch the movie as a whole, it builds her character. So, for me, like from a from pers- purpose of building Frances's character, um, it made sense to to have it in there. It, it's still so out there. Like if if that if that scene wasn't there, I wouldn't I wouldn't have missed it. You know, like if if the movie was done without that scene, it it wouldn't like confuse me as to what's going on in the movie. But it builds her character, so I think I think it was good too. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like you have mixed feelings if I understand right. I have mixed feelings in that I have I've I don't know if I can like properly recount any such movies that are so tight and then it just randomly has a scene that doesn't have to do with the main plot whatsoever. Um, so I have a tough time kind of comparing it with anything and, and thinking about it. But just from like character building perspective, it totally makes sense because it's already such a such a short movie. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess the plus is it doesn't necessarily add a lot to the runtime. It certainly doesn't serve any plot points, yeah. but the sort of weird, offbeat, quirky tone to it, I do think is pretty consistent with the film uh-huh. as a whole. Um, right. So let um, me ask you, would you, what what would have been your preference? Would you say, like, if you were the editor, cut it or keep it? I think I would have yeah. cut it if it were me. Yeah. Um, I, I tend to be someone that favors uh, keeping movies shorter rather than longer, uh-huh. and I just don't see it serving enough of a function. Um, uh, in addition, I don't know if I totally agree with this point, but it does have some controversy over its portrayal of Asian character, too. So, huh. you know, uh, okay. uh, I, I, I'm not someone that's going to pick a big bone with that one, necessarily. Um, it's a lot to bite off for such a small scene, yeah. but, uh, you know... I, if it were me, I probably would have just cut the scene. Okay. Um, it, it stands out in a way that's a little strange um, yeah. for the film goes. Um, all right. Uh, so let's see. Uh, so I, I have, uh, I want to, before we get into some of our favorite scenes here, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, sort of the historical context of Fargo or where we played it uh, contextually in the Coen Brothers um, canon. Um, so... Uh, first, uh, I think one of the things that really is different between this film and something earlier in the Coen's career, like Blood Simple, which you mentioned, mm-hmm. is that um, I think this is like their fifth or sixth mm-hmm. film, um, and uh, it, uh, let's see, it is their sixth feature Whoa. film, um, and so I feel like they really uh, have a lot more polish in mm-hmm. certain things, like their cinematographer here is Roger mm-hmm. Deakins who is just like a world acclaimed cinematographer. I think the film looks really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, they capture that sort of like snowy yep. landscape super mm-hmm. well. Um, uh, for me, this is, uh, I, I think, one of my all-time favorite snow films. Um, do you have any sort of thoughts on where it ranks as far as like films that are set in the snow? Wow. I mean, like literally almost all of this is set uh, in the yeah. snow. Oh man, uh, I don't even know if I have a favorite snow film. Wow. Okay. 
<laughs> there must be like a wiki um, or some kind of a list going around for the favorite snow films, right? Yeah. Um, uh, pro probably. I, I have some favorites. I mean, The Thing. Have you seen No, I have not. Okay, that's a good one. Um, I mean, it's a lot of westerns and like samurai films uh -huh. or are the other uh -huh. films that I have in the list. Uh, this, yeah, this might be my favorite non-historical slash sci-fi mm -hmm. film uh, mm -hmm. on there. Uh, okay, well, I as mean, far as uh, the snow films I, I like go, the way that... I think only one uh -huh. other comes to mind right away for me, and that's Hateful Eight. Yeah, ah, like nice, good one. Yeah, that had such a big element of snow slash winter throughout the entire movie, and like the the sound of like wind and and doors rustling and stuff is always ongoing in that movie. So, right, um, that's that's the only one that, and that like and that... instantly comes to mind. Like if I if I sat down and made a list, it would probably take me a little bit more time before I could come up with one. Yeah. Yeah, good call. Uh, I didn't even think of that, but uh, that very much fits in that sort of like Western movies yeah. set in the snow vibe. Um, I'm also a fan of The Hateful Eight, uh, even if it's not my favorite Tarantino. And you're right, it definitely has like that that heavy snowy vibe yeah. uh, that's very different from this uh, Fargo's heavy snowy yeah. vibe. But I think is and what great. about The Shining? Um, it's not ah it's, The Shining, you know. Yeah, it's not a I, snow I movie in a, like yeah. a standard characteristic of like you see snow a whole lot of time, but like that, like it's always there, right? Like the reason they're indoors and in the right. hotel as innkeepers or whatever is because of the snow outside, right? And that's why they don't have right. guests and stuff, obviously. Right. I mean, like that atmosphere outside i mean in that sense it's maybe a little closer to the hateful mm -hmm. eight in the sense that it's like that that film is mainly interiors of like the overlook mm -hmm. hotel uh rather than being outside fargo is a little different in the sense that like you actually do get a ton of exterior yep. shots and you see a lot of snow on the ground yeah. um yeah good example too i i didn't even think of the shining but that's a good one that's not a western um film um uh, speaking of which, uh, in some sense, I feel like Fargo could even be called a Western in a way. Uh, like, and I'm going to read some stuff and you can let me know what you think of it uh, okay. there. I think one of the things that really sets it off is its elements, its sense of place, mm -hmm. um, the snow. It's like a really strong atmosphere mm -hmm. in the same way that it is for like Hateful Eight or The Great Silence, which is another Western uh, mainly set in the snow. Um, some people also regard uh, No Country as a Western, too. Um, it sort of has that, like, sandy vibes and, and stuff like that, also mainly set outside, um, and sort of the crime that takes place there. Um, yeah, what do, you, what do you think of that? Do you think it could be called a Western, um, or do you think of it more as just, like, a crime film? It didn't come off to me as a, as a Western at all. I... I... Okay. I feel like it's stretching the definition of Western if we talk about like Fargo as, as a Western. Okay. I don't know. Well, that's fair. Where um, where do you fall what on about this? No country. Uh, I guess I probably mainly agree. Yeah. I think there's like twenty five percent of it that is kind of mm -hmm. Western, but I mean like sort of like the vast landscapes of snow mm -hmm. and stuff like that. 
But I mean, there's no gunfighting. There or are anything no standoffs like or anything. They don't anything. have like a final no, draw at the end. Of, sort of. Right. I guess Macy's character is getting chased at the end, but it's not even like. It's not like two people of equal stature trying to fight against each other or anything like that. Like. So. Right. What about No Country? Is that a Western to you? Closer. 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 I don't know. I haven't thought about uh-huh. No Country so much as a Western, So, and, and I haven't watched it in a while, but certainly Closer. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, one last thing about the snowy elements of this film is that uh, there's a documentary, I believe, made about this person, uh, this Japanese salary lady, Takako uh, Konishi, uh-huh. uh, who uh, basically uh, committed suicide uh, in uh, in this oh, area? Yeah. Um, and she was she was supposedly a big fan of this film. Um, and one of the rumors of it was that she uh, she was looking for this treasure that Steve yeah. Buscemi hid. And that's how she yeah she was frozen, found frozen in a lake or something, right? Yeah, something like that. I think she drank a bunch of champagne and uh, basically lied out in the snow and I guess froze to death, which is pretty horrific. Um, But, I mean, it adds to sort of like the uh, lore of the film. I mean, the fact that, (laughs) I mean, people could even think that that's possible. I mean, it strains credibility to think that's actually what she was doing, Uh Um, but uh, thought it'd be worth mentioning at least. Um, so I was saying earlier that this is maybe not my personal favorite Coen Brothers film. Um, where do you think it fits in for you, uh, as far as the Coen Brothers film? Do you have some that you like more than this? Uh, this is the film that came right, uh, before Big Lebowski, um, Mm -hmm. another favorite of theirs. Yeah. Um, I think like, I think it's tough. Um... I feel like over the years Fargo has grown on me more, so than than I how much I liked it in the beginning. Um, I would still not call it my favorite Coen Brothers movie. Um, I think like yeah, my my obvious my pick would be pretty obvious, which is No Country for Old Men for like having it uh, having a favorite Coen Brothers movie. Um, I almost like for the nostalgia's sake, I like blood simple more than i like uh fargo probably uh from nostalgia perspective that's the first weirdly enough i watched blood simple before i watched fargo and uh yeah oh wow uh it was i think one of the one of the person in the administrative staff recommended it from our electrical engineering department weirdly enough and i watched blood simple and uh huh. yeah that's that's really when i kind of realized what the coen brothers movies were about like i hadn't seen a whole lot of coen brothers movies before then or if i had seen i hadn't like i think i may have i may have had watched big lebowski but i didn't realize the the coen brother-esque movies that existed out there right yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, makes me really want to rewatch Blood Simple, actually, because um, it's been uh, quite a long time since I've seen that one. I think I've only seen it the one time. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think what you said also um, about Fargo sort of growing in your memory mm -hmm. a bit, I think that resonates mm -hmm. with me too. I think it's one of the, the strengths of the Coen brothers at films. And a thing we were talking about earlier is like, Fargo is a film you're going to remember, even if you just liked mm -hmm. it uh, and you didn't necessarily love it. Um, in a way that a film like The English Patient, not to just completely crap all over The English Patient, but also to kind of just crap English all over patient. The English Patient, it's never gonna, never gonna be that way. I mean, I mean, it's just like, yeah. I barely remember The English yeah. Patient, um, but Fargo, the setting, the characters, those things are just gonna linger with you um, for a really long time, and they're super yeah. memorable, um, just the characterizations of Marge Gunderson um, and uh, Carl, and it's like, all, all three of those characters, even in the short time span of 90 minutes, are so memorable, um, and the, it just really sticks yeah. with you. Uh, my personal favorite Coen Brothers film is, uh, is I guess, probably a slightly off-the-beaten pick. It's it's probably Inside Lewin Davis. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, that's I right. I just really like the setting and the music of the film. I have yet to watch um, that movie. From this era? Okay, there you go. I mean, it's like not a film that you would think off of the cuff that would be uh, necessarily a favorite, um, but yeah. And then probably from the other two decades, um, I guess I'd probably go back and forth between Fargo and Big Lebowski mm -hmm. in the 90s, and then I, I'm also a fan of No Country yeah. uh, in the 2000s. But I think my all-time favorite is still uh, Inside Living Davis. Okay, Makes um, sense. okay. Uh, so... Uh, that's kind of what I got uh, for context. Anything you want to add to uh, to any of those uh, those points? No, I think you covered all of them really well. Thanks. Okay, great. Um, so let's move on to um, some memorable scenes uh, before we wrap up with winners and losers. Uh, so uh, for me, uh, there's a few here. Um, we talked a little bit about the first scene where Lundergaard and uh, Showalter and uh, Grimsrud, um, where they meet up and they just can't even decide what time they're supposed to meet up and it just sort of foreshadows all the incompetence that we're going to see in the film. Um, did you have any additional thoughts about that? I know we already covered a lot of that. Yeah, uh, I don't know why, but like that was very, like, that scene was such a, especially watching the movie again, is like it's a very characteristic scene. And it like stands out even more as you rewatch that rewatch the movie. Um, yeah, I don't have anything else to add about that. One. Yeah, that's a good good favorite okay. scene for um, sure. Yeah, yeah, it starts starts out well. Um, uh, next one is just Buscemi in the car in general, just talking to himself mainly, getting his 150 lines of dialogue in. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, um, we talked a bit about this. My favorite part of that is where he goes off on the total fucking yeah. silence yeah. Uh, part. I would. Um, anything. I would. I would add. Uh, that is a really good scene. I think my favorite scene for Buscemi and Carr is where he, after like, where he's shot in the face and he's bleeding, and then he gets out uh, to bury the money in the snow, and it's just a, like. It just makes you think, like, if, what if he's bleeding on the snow and stuff? And, like, because the snow is just so white. Like, yeah. It, there's a lot of things going on there, despite it being such a simple scene. Yeah. That I really like that one. Yeah. I mean, this... Yeah, the snow provides just such a wonderful uh, canvas to paint on, too, in a way. It's just, like, so white and so blank. 
that it's like yeah imagining the blood and, and all of the like gruesome things that are going on there in this film it's like it's like yeah it it's very visual also does a lot of weird walking in that scene as well <laughs> as as <laughs> Buscemi has done in the in the in this movie yeah <laughs> i mean one of the my favorite parts about this film is like everyone just describes Buscemi is funny looking and it's perfect because we know exactly who they're talking about and who they mean uh throughout the film like they don't need any more further description funny looking is the perfect description for Carl Showalter in this film there's no doubt about who they are talking about (laughs) that's true yes yes good call out yeah um okay uh the kidnapping I talked a bit about that already how it sort of starts out as this dark comedy Uh moments um, the next one I wanted to bring up... Oh, did you have anything to add to the kidnapping? No, or? no, I, it was a good scene, yeah. Okay. And I, I think this scene takes place, I guess, half an hour in, because this is the scene that brings uh, Marge Gunderson in, is uh, the uh, killing on the uh, freeway, uh, where they mm-hmm. kill the cop, and then they end up killing uh, the other two yeah. people. And I feel like that's the moment where this film really takes a really, really dark turn. Um, I think it's a really well done scene. Um, and before that, I feel like the film is, you could interpret it, especially if you haven't seen it be- before as being like a little more mm-hmm. lighthearted and enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And that film just sort of like, it starts out like here in terms of darkness and it just like raises the yeah. notch, you know, like, whoa. Yeah. Um, and considering the sort of like really low stakes of it, just like a cop pulling mm-hmm. them over, um, it's, uh. It, it adds to sort of like the the pointless feeling of the whole thing um yeah what did you have any thoughts on this scene um one of the few nighttime yeah, scenes I'm, I'm right with you on there like you could almost think of it as you could think of it as like a like a maybe like slightly more of a comedy until until that point and you just realize the depth of like holy shit jerry who have you gotten in bed with right as a viewer like you do you even realize what what kind of people these are like so that that scene is it, like it right. really sets the gravity of the situation that Jerry's wife is in all of a sudden uh obviously like they they are pretty um even the kidnapping scene is is pretty feels pretty brutal but yeah this this part like really really yeah. makes it clear with the cop pulling them over and getting killed and then like those uh, other two people driving just kills them too so right i mean it gives you a body count it's the moment where you know that it's the moment yeah. of no return where it's like up to that point it's like the kidnapping had been brutal but the wife was yep. still alive um there's no dead people or anything like that so there's still like somewhat of a chance that jerry's plan could yeah. work out and that's the moment where you're just like, yeah. oh fuck, uh, this is this is not going to go well. There's no um, coming back yeah. for anyone yeah. really. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, okay, um, and uh, the last thing, I, uh, last scene I have here is uh, is the wood chipper, um, and how can you forget the wood that's chipper? Great. Uh, yeah, just to, yeah, where uh, <laughs> Buscemi's being put into the wood chipper yeah more so Uh, like the wood chipper reveal right because as uh yeah as she uh as marge is heading over there and like she finds out that this person's just (laughs) 
putting humans through wood chipper and there's just a whole bunch of blood on the other side of the wood chipper as it's spraying out like like stripped off body parts and stuff just it's all yeah. red snow it's crazy yeah yeah right. and the and the leg and we talk about foot stuff. sticking out of the, the wood chipper yeah too. i mean talk talk about a memorable image uh yeah we talk about sort of like the parts of this film lingering in our memory and you know one of them is probably like the accents but like the wood chipper image and that stuff that's definitely like maybe the image that would stick in the memory of this film it's like you got everything you got like the the depravity of the characters uh and you have like it in this like pristine snowy environment whose foot is it sticking out do you think like I, i don't know if it's obvious to tell i can't remember is it buscemi's foot or is it the wife's foot um you know that's a good question let me uh let me load up a Google image right here. Okay. Sadly, just searching wood chipper isn't quite enough. I have to search wood chipper. Oh, it might be. It might be Buscemi's foot. I think. Yeah. There's some. There's some hair on the uh, leg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Probably Buscemi's then. It's a white yep. sock. Um. Um. Yeah. I just. I was just curious. Um. <clears throat> let's see. I think like a couple of more scenes to add, and I, I I've sort of called this out, which w- uh-huh. one was like um, uh, Lundergaard's interaction with his father-in-law and and father-in-law's friend, who just like totally uh, turn on him and be like, you know, they don't they don't even consider giving him partnership for for something uh, where he's brought such a sweet deal out to him. They're like, what's your finder's fee? We'll give you a finder's fee. And they just, basically, they just, like, it was very kind of, um, I don't know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's very, it wasn't great for, for Jerry. Uh, almost insulting is, is the word. Like, the very mm-hmm. insulting scene for, for Jerry. Because he's done all the work. He's done yeah. all the sort of groundwork of finding something that, and then they confirm that it is going to be a, like, you know, a hundred percent success. Yeah. Right. And so. It's like, right. You get the feeling that it's like one of the very few good ideas that Jerry has yeah. had. Um, and he doesn't even get to realize it. Um, so, yeah, it is kind of like a subtly um, kind of yeah. sad scene. And then another one that I would call out is... is um, when um, uh, when Francis McDormand's character um, uh, confronts William H Macy's character Jerry uh, in the in the second interaction that they have, where where she asks him again, like, well, how do you actually know that nothing has been stolen off? And then and then Jerry just gets really pissed off, and he's like. All right, all right. You want to count? I'll I'll go do an actual inventory count, and uh, and she's just sitting there. And then like, next thing you know, he's she's running out. And I, I love how adorably uh, Francis McDormand just goes like, oh, he's he's running away. He's he's getting away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's pretty great. It's like so calm. Yeah, yeah. It's like he's not fleeing. Like he's fleeing the imagining. interview. <laughs> I just right. love it. <laughs> yeah. 
It's like they don't bother playing like dramatic music or anything yeah. like that. It's just so matter of fact yeah. about the whole thing. That's great. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, those are. I mean, yeah, those are probably the couple ones that stand out. Obviously, yeah. and obviously the ones you called out too. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up the scene, especially with Wade. I mean, I think it shows that he is like even Wade is a failure in this film. He doesn't add any warmth or any any dignity to this film at all. He fits in perfectly as sort of like this real asshole um, mm -hmm. that uh, is kind of a jerk to everyone. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, you know, I mean, he is also the cause of his own downfall in certain ways of being, like, super egotistical mm -hmm. and uh, about it and doing the drop. It's like, he didn't need to go and he didn't yeah. need to die. Yeah. I mean, his death, like many of the deaths in this film, is totally unnecessary. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm glad you brought yeah. that one up. I, I, the father-in-law having that explanation yeah. i think does help to make it a little bit of a richer film rather than jerry just doing all of this just because yeah. someone that is um more slighted and and yeah uh, yeah yeah so um okay uh well uh any other scenes you want to highlight or should we go on to winners and losers um i think yeah we called out everything that i was interested in um probably missing one or two maybe somewhere there but i think we covered the main ones at least okay well and winners and losers i have it very simple i have it as everyone loses but the gundersons that's that's pretty accurate yeah everybody loses uh maybe maybe the yeah. the friend of uh uh friend of the father-in-law kind of comes out in the positive but or or neutral yeah neutral yeah neutral yeah he's he's uh less of a jerk than uh Wade he gets to sure. he gets the um, deal and doesn't have to share it with uh father-in-law either so his friend yeah well sp speaking of the other gunderson who we haven't even mentioned yes. the name but norm son of a gunderson uh how did you uh how did you like uh uh that that character I really liked him. He was a like a good, good supporting character, right? So, it's really great. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not a whole lot yeah, of John Carroll. Like you don't see him a whole bunch, in the movie. Yeah. You just see him in the beginning, a couple of times, and then at the very end. So. Yeah, I mean it's interesting the uh, gender reversal in this film. It's like Norm Gunderson. I mean John Carroll Lynch is like a big guy. He's like a big yeah. lumbering guy. And it's like you could see in like another movie that those would be totally reversed. It's like the pregnant wife staying mm -hmm. at home uh, mm -hmm. and like the he would be the actual cop. But instead, he's kind of like this really meek personality. Um, I mean, I also remember him as like playing the suspected Zodiac killer in Zodiac for David Fincher. Oh, yeah. So uh, <laughs> so it's like it's cool to see him in such a contrast to those uh -huh. uh, sorts of roles because it's like you could imagine someone like that just playing like menacing heavies uh for his entire career so i'm glad he got a chance to do something a little uh or really quite mm -hmm. different and him and marge collectively are kind of the warmth to the film and their relationship which is very mm -hmm. um uh heartwarming true yeah, yeah yeah and i don't know how tall francis mcdormand is but she doesn't as large as as um he is she doesn't feel very short in front of in front of him um interesting 
Yeah, it's probably has to do with how they chose to film probably. them too. Yeah, um, in the sense that they probably didn't want him to be hulking yeah. over her, um, because he's a he's a big yeah. guy. Uh, I don't know what his actual height is, but he's he's large. Yeah, uh, prob probably yeah taller than than he seems on the in the movie. Uh, I love how he. I think he brings lunch for her in the station, right? <laughs> At the police station or whatever. It's kind of nice. Yeah, he is listed at six three. So wow. Okay, and I think McDormand is Fairly probably tall. five yeah. five or something. So that would be my guess. Yes. Um, so pretty, let's see. Pretty she significant is difference. At five five. Exactly. Nice. Yep. Exactly. So almost a foot difference. Um, okay. Well, I think that just about concludes my thoughts on Fargo. Any last things to to mention before we wrap it up? Um, I want to. Well, so. Slightly tangential, but absolutely relevant and related is that there's a TV show called Fargo as well. Uh, and Coen Brothers are, are uh, producers on there. So, and <clears throat> of the, so, so far there have been three seasons. And as we're recording this fourth one running, I absolutely loved the first three seasons. I had a really great time watching them. And I don't know, like... Maybe we could record those too, depending on how much time we have or what what might be our interests. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm also a yeah. fan. No, uh, I was recommended it actually by me. Uh, so he's the one that uh, did it. I haven't seen the fourth season yeah. yet, but I like all three of the first seasons. So um, the first one in particular has a lot of similarities to this plot, but um, pretty much everything with Fargo on the name of it has been pretty good as far as entertainment yeah. goes. Noah Hawley is the creator, and I think, I think he does a really, really good job bringing, uh, f yeah, Fargo, the big screen movie, to a small screen, <clears throat> uh, bringing right. the adaptation yeah, to a small, smaller screen. Uh, it's not an ad yeah. exact adaptation of the movie itself, but it seems that the characters may be relevant or uh, connected or not. Um, uh, I think in the first season, right. the the family kind of similar to Gunderson's is Solverson's, and the father's name is Lou Solverson. So right. maybe it's the same character as the Luke, the cop, or maybe not. We don't know. Um, but yeah. 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 I mean, I think the show does a good job of capturing the appeal of the original. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of ways it could have gone wrong, but it captures a lot of like the... Um, you know, the heart of yeah. the show and, and the elements of it um, set out there. And, you know, it's like we're so used to seeing, like, crime dramas set in, like, different places. Like, I don't know, even, uh, like, urban environments, but even, like, more desert environments, like No Country for Old Men. Um, so it's nice to see it uh, taking place in such a unique setting. Right. So, uh, I, in that sense, I'm on board with both this and the TV show. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Um, All right. Okay. Anything last to add? All set. Okay. Great. Uh, thank you all for tuning in uh, to the Category 3 podcast. Uh, give us a five-star rating on iTunes uh, if you want to. Uh, yeah. If you're Meat Small listening to this, please give us a five-star rating. <laughs> she might listen to this uh, one. We, we didn't both really curse, on it, curse anything here. So no curse words, and she's okay. probably okay. I think the okay. unlike the like succession podcast and... that we we might not 
suitable <laughs> listen to. No, the Succession podcasts are really uh, not suitable for work podcasts at all. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Even from just the first line of it, it's like sometimes I'm listening to them and I'm just like, what? Oh my god! <laughs> yes. So... But that is the essence of that show, too. So uh, so thank you again for tuning in. Uh, we will uh, see you all next time. See you all next time. Bye.